0: Some of you are going to be very happy what I'm about to say, others maybe not so much. But I'm just not ready to send Moses on to glory yet. I'm not. I'm having withdrawal at the thoughts of being finished with the book of Deuteronomy after all of these years, so we're going to linger just a little while longer, okay? Okay. And honestly, the last time we were together in Deuteronomy, we only looked at three verses in chapter 33, and there's so much more there. So we're going to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 33 this morning, and I'm going to ask you if you have your Bibles with you, if you would take that out and turn to the almost end of Deuteronomy chapter 33, and you found your place, I'm going to ask you to stand so we can hear read together the word of the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 33, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death. He said, the Lord came from Sinai and dawned over them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came with myriads of holy ones from the south, from his mountain slopes. Surely it is you who love the people. All the holy ones are in your hand. At your feet, they all bow down, and from you receive instruction. The law that Moses gave us, the possession of the assembly of Jacob. He was the king over Jeshurun, when the leaders of the people assembled, along with the tribes of Israel. Let Reuben live and not die, nor his men be few. Let's pray together. Father, thank you again for your word. and giving us your word, preserving your word, your truth for us, Lord, through these thousands of years, because your word, Lord, never fails, always relevant to our lives, always a reflection of who you are, always instruction for who we are and should be before you. So we pray now that you would bless your word to our hearts and our spirits, feed us, nourish us, strengthen us, through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. you. May be seated. An old man was on his deathbed, and his wife was by his side. And as he lay dying, he whispered his last words to his wife. And he said to her, You have always been. By my side, When the fire burned everything we had, you were right there with me. And he paused for his wife to wipe a tear from her eye. And then he continued, he said, When the flood came and washed away everything we had, you were right there by my side. And again, he paused while his, while his wife brushed away another tear. And then he said, When the depression came, And we lost everything we had. You never left my side. And now the tears of the wife were flowing. And the man continued. He said, you know what I've decided? And his wife lovingly and hopefully responded, no, honey, what have you decided? And so the husband summoned his remaining strength, and he barked out, you are bad luck. <laughs> Moses could have been a bitter old man. Moses could have been as blunt as the man in the story. Moses' last words could have been words of retribution. He could have said, remember the golden calf? Remember your constant complaints? Remember always saying, we want to get back to Egypt. We want to get back to Egypt. Remember your rebellion and your refusal to take the promised land when God commanded you to take it. On and on, it could have gone. But the heart of Moses is not to curse the people with his final words. The heart of Moses is to bless the people because the heart of the God who inspires the thoughts of Moses The heart of the God who inspires the words that Moses writes. The heart of Moses' God is to bless his people. And we confirmed that when we were together in March in Deuteronomy, chapter 33, and we looked at verses 1 and 2 and 29. This morning, returning to chapter 33, we need to look at these blessings a little more closely realizing that the specifics of the blessings, they don't apply to us. They were for different people from a different time and a different place. But here's what the blessings do. They reveal the heart of God. They show us how it is that God blesses His people. They reveal to us the words that God speaks to His people so that they will flourish and thrive in the land that He is giving to them. And so, in that way, you and I, as we read these blessings together, we can be challenged and we can be changed by the same blessings because that's our goal. At least, I pray it's our goal. We want to flourish. We want to thrive. We want to live well here in the place where God has planted planted us for the sake of the kingdom of God. So let's begin to look at some of these blessings. As many of you know, I have five, five children, and I love all five of them. But one of the children is my favorite. And we have this little tradition on Christmas Day. At some point in the day, I sneak off with this favorite child, and. And we go off together, and I give this child a few extra presents. And I say, I'm giving these to you because you're my favorite, but don't tell the other four kids about it. So that child opens the presents, and then we go rejoin the family. Okay, that's absolutely not true. (laughs) That is not true. I do not have a favorite child, Adam. that I give extra gifts to. But think about the feelings you were having for that brief moment when you thought, what if that story is true? A special child, special gifts. No, on Christmas morning, we all open our gifts together so everyone can see what everyone else got so you know what you want to borrow in the future. (laughs) Well, it's gift distribution time. Or blessing, distribution time for the people of Israel. And so the first challenge that comes to us as we look at these gifts, that these blessings that Moses gives the people, and what quite likely will require change for you and for me in our living and thinking is that these blessings are not distributed privately, and they are not held Individualistically, look in verse 1. This is the blessing that Moses, the man of God, pronounced on the Israelites before his death. This is the blessing. So, although these, although these blessings were pronounced individually to the tribes, to Reuben and Judah and Levi and Benjamin and the rest, Yet the blessings were viewed as one, one big blessing, a unified whole. And the individual blessing given to each tribe will be used by that tribe to strengthen the entire covenant community of God. And so once again and again and again, we see that God is trying to break his people out of individualistic thinking. And tendencies. And the roots of those tendencies, they go deep and they stretch far back to the time of creation when God created everything there is out of nothing. And when God looked at what He had created, He said, It is good. The light, it's good. The earth, the sky, it's good. The plants, good. The creatures of the sea, good. The birds of the air, good. The animals, good. All good. God looked at it all when he had finished and he said, it is very good. But the first thing that God said was not good is this. He said, it is not good for man to be what? Alone. So God created Eve for Adam. We normally apply this verse to marriage, and rightly so, but it is so much bigger than that. It addresses the heart condition with which we all struggle, that believes it's better to go it alone, that it's better to seek to be independent of others. You and I this morning have got to stop thinking that there's some sort of nobility in being independent, never needing anyone else, never asking for help. We have to stop believing that somehow the character of the really independent person is superior to those who choose to live in community with others. This is not God's way, independence, because... Hand in hand with independence from others usually goes independence from God, right? We don't need you, Lord, or, or we wish we didn't. Listen, y'all know where I'm from. I'm from the mountains, right? And mountain people are fiercely independent. And that's the way it is. And I can't tell you the number of mountain people, Christians, that I've experienced in my life who say things like, well, I don't pray for myself. I don't want to bother God. You know, I'll let other people who need God more take his time and attention. Listen, if you don't pray for yourself, where's your help going to come from? Right? And you're not doing what Jesus himself did. What did Jesus do? When he was in the garden of Gethsemane, he prayed for himself. Father, He said, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. That was a prayer. Lord, I want this cup to pass from me, yet not my will, but your will be done. So in that moment, Jesus is praying for himself, and he is dependent on the Father to carry him to the cross. He's praying for the Father to take him through the cross. You and I can choose to be independent. But we just need to know that we'll pay the consequences for that choice. Either living without the better thing we could have. If we were living in community. Or living in frustration because we're really not as independent as we think we are. And it's very difficult to be our self-deliverers. God has not designed us for independence but for community. And God on purpose, has withheld from you gifts and talents that he has, on purpose, given to other people. Do you know how many people in the world are equipped to do everything? Not very many. So independence will not cause you to flourish in your spiritual life. You're not going to be stronger spiritually because you're independent. And you're not going to be a better kingdom builder because you are so independent. Because you're going to deprive yourself of the gifts that God has given to others. And you'll be limited by your own few abilities. And just as an aside, because I beat this drum whenever I can. But this is why we need to be so passionate. And willing to do the hard work we need to do to achieve diversity. Diversity. In the church. Because when we're homogeneous, when we all kind of look alike, same socioeconomic background, basically, same educational opportunities, basically, it's almost like we are independent of others. And we are deprived of strength that other people have. We're deprived of the gifts that God has given to other kinds of people. We are deprived of the unique perspective. That they bring. And so we're less than we could be. The apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 12. There are different kinds of gifts. But the same spirit. Different kinds of service. But the same Lord. Different kinds of working. But the same God works all of them in all men. A diversity of gifts. A variety of gifts. And then Paul writes this in verse 7. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So your gift, whatever it is, and God has given you at least one, it's for all of us together, to make all of us stronger. In Ephesians 4, Paul writes, and speaking of the gifts that Jesus has given to to the body, he says that they are given to prepare God's people Prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. See, Moses did not intend for these tribes to live in isolation from one another once they entered into the promised land. They were together blessed as one unit. This is the blessing. So that together they could do the things that God had called them to do and and be the people that God had called them to be together. And so it is with us. We are blessed together so that all of us can become more like Christ. Is it worth giving up independence? Is it worth working with others? Is it worth calling on others to experience unity in the church? Do you think it's worth it? Oh, I'm glad you do, Kathy, honey. <laughs> Anybody else think it's worth it? Is it worth giving up our independence? Is it worth working together and calling on others to attain the whole measure of the fullness of Christ? Is it worth it? Yes. Yeah. Sometimes I think that when we come together with a church as a church like this, it ought to be like a big self-help group, you know. Hello. My name is Craig. Hi Craig. <laughs> and I'm really independent. It's been six days since I've asked anyone for help. (laughs) So here I am again asking you to remind me how much I need other people. We can't stay away from each other too long or we will relapse into independence. So I'm just saying, if we're really going to make a difference in the city of Charleston, we're really going to make a difference in the world for Jesus' sake, then again, it is true. We must be a family on mission together. Pooling our perspectives, pooling our resources, pooling our talents, and being blessed together. Now, that's true of all the blessings that we're going to look at here in Deuteronomy chapter 33. So having said all that, Not to discourage you, because I know you know how many tribes there are. But we're only going to get to one blessing this morning, all right? And that's just the blessing that Moses gives to Reuben. So look in verse 6. With a happy heart, look in verse 6. Let Reuben live and not die, nor his men be few. Now that is a really short blessing, but don't let the brevity of it Fooled you. This blessing is full of grace and it's full of hope for the future, not only for Reuben, but for you and for me as well. And so that's the two aspects I want to look at at this particular blessing the grace of it and the hope that it gives us for the future. Let's begin with the grace of this blessing. And to understand it, we have to go back to Jacob, Reuben's father, Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. When Jacob was an old man, before he died, as he was on his deathbed, he called his sons and he said, gather around so I can tell you what will happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, sons of Jacob, listen to your father Israel. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first sign of my strength, excelling in honor, excelling in power. So as firstborn, Reuben should have been preeminent over all the other sons of Jacob. He was first in the family, but Jacob continues. Reuben, turbulent, unstable, uncontrolled as the waters, you will no longer excel, for you went up onto your father's bed, onto my couch, And defiled it. Well, what's that all about? On one occasion, while Jacob was gone, Reuben went in to Jacob's concubine, his servant wife, and he slept with her. Now, there are many reasons to explain Reuben's behavior. One could be simple lust, absolutely. But in the culture of that day, so much more was involved. If a son went in to the concubine of his father, he was challenging his father's authority as head of the home. He was trying to establish himself as authority over his brothers. Now listen, later in the history of Israel, King David's son Absalom is going to do the same thing. Absalom tries to take over the throne from his father. He he, he chases David out of Jerusalem. He raises an army against him, trying to dethrone his own father. And in order to accomplish his coup, one of his advisors says this to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house. Then all Israel will know that you have insulted your father beyond hope of reconciliation, and they will throw their support to you. All Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof. And Absalom went into his father's concubines, plural, in the sight of all of Israel. See, when Absalom did the same thing that Reuben did, it was to insult his father, to dethrone his father, and to defeat his father and elevate himself. All that to say, Reuben's sin went far beyond sleeping with his father's wife. And so we understand Jacob's words to Reuben. But now, it's time for Moses to distribute blessings. What will Reuben get? Does the tribe know of the sin of Reuben? Absolutely. Will Reuben receive a blessing at all? If so, what kind of blessing will Reuben get? We'll look in verse 6. Let Reuben live and not die, nor his men be few. Let Reuben live. This is what's so great. The very first part of the very first blessing that comes to the people through Moses highlights the grace of God. Reuben will not be cut off because of his sin. Reuben will not be cut off because of his sin. Does that sound like good news to anybody? Though Moses doesn't restore Reuben to first place and the place of honor, Yet Reuben will go on. And so Moses, here in his blessing, he's removing or at least mitigating the shame and the disgrace that Jacob had rightly placed on his son. And in spite of his sin, Reuben has a place among the sons of God in this new nation that's about to be established. And Moses has blessed Reuben in front of everybody. No need For the tribes, the other tribes, to whisper among themselves. You know what Reuben did? Yes, I know what Reuben did. But what of it, right? Because of the grace of God, he has been blessed and restored. This is tremendously encouraging as a first blessing for us to receive as a church. Because his first blessing leads us to the grace of God. And what a great place that is to be for people who sin, for people like us who attempt to dethrone God from having authority over us in our lives, for people who try to elevate themselves, insist on going their own way and doing their own thing, for people who regularly give in to their lusts or passions, whatever those may be, they're is the grace of God. Forgiveness in Christ, right? Restoration in Christ. Because of the grace of God, He is not finished with us. And so the blessing of Reuben is our blessing as well. In spite of his sin, in spite of his rebellion, by the grace of God, Reuben does not come to an end. We do not come to an end. Let Reuben live and not die. Everybody needs a wife like this in the front row. (laughs) Second aspect of the blessing is its future hope. Let Reuben live and not die, nor his men be few. So now, Moses, God through Moses, is giving us a glimpse into the future because the generations of Reuben will continue. His men, his descendants after him will not be few. They're going to go on and on and on. So what a blessing. What a blessing from the Lord to his people. To know that before they ever start out in this new adventure called a new nation in the promised land, their cause is not going to fail. How many entrepreneurial types do we have in here? You can raise your hand. You do not matter to me. But you know what you're like. You're always thinking of different kinds of businesses that you could start. Maybe you're even applying to the church. and You're thinking of different kind of ministries that you could start. Wouldn't it be great if you knew from the very beginning that you were going to succeed and not fail? That you weren't going to lose all your money? that you weren't going to have to file bankruptcy. Listen, when Kathy and I came here to Charleston years ago to plant this church, they were always putting before us the statistics of, uh, of church plants that fail. Look, a lot of church plants fail. And so you're always unsure. Oh, are we going to fail? Are we going to succeed? What's going to happen to us? How freeing it would be to know from the beginning that you're not going to fail but that you're going to go on and on and on. And so the blessing is knowing that before they enter the promised land and all the certainty, uncertainty of that place and all the unfamiliarity they will encounter there, Reuben will live and his descendants will be many. By the grace of God and because of the grace of God, he will continue on and on and on. And God considers this a great blessing for his people To have this kind of knowledge. And so he blesses us, the church, with that same knowledge. By the grace of God, we will go on and on and on and on. And the gates of hell will not prevail against us. Jesus said so. That's our future. Now at this point, you're really going to think I'm crazy. But I could not help thinking as I was working through this passage of the whack-a-mole game. <laughs> Have you seen the whack-a-mole game at a carnival or, or, or a fair? It's just little cabinets about waste time. There's a board in front of you with holes and these moles pop up from the holes and you take the hammer and you whack them, Right? And you whack them, but you whack this one and one pops up over there. And you whack that one and one pops up over here. And so the more moles you whack, the more points you get. But guess what? You never get all the moles. They keep popping up, no matter how many times you hit them. So here's the good news. There is no person and there is no government that will ever whack the church out of existence it's gonna keep popping up but having said that because listen I know how evangelical Christians think we have to remember that history has scored some points in whacking the church Christianity was once the dominant religion dominant religion across North Africa, through the Middle East, and up into modern-day Turkey. European Christians, on the other hand, tiny minority. In the year 1050, Turkey, the land of the seven churches of the book of Revelation, was nearly 100% Christian. Can you imagine? 400 years later, The Christian population had dropped to less than 15%, and today, Turkey is nearly all Muslim, and less than a quarter of 1% is Christian. Whack, right? Whack to the church. Christianity arrived in Japan in 1542, and it grew to around 300,000 people within 50 years. 300,000 in Japan. But in 1587, Japan expelled all the foreigners, and in 1614, Christians came under intense persecution so that when Japan allowed missionaries back in 1858, what they found to have survived was some barely recognizable Christian traditions in a handful of remote fishing villages and islands. Whack, right? One more. Mark Cortez theology professor and dean at Western Seminary, writes this. I recently spent two weeks with Christian leaders in Slovakia, where the church is still recovering from decades of communist rule. During that time, the Christians in Slovakia were unquestionably committed. But talking with those leaders, it's difficult to say that they were thriving during those years. Restrictive laws made it difficult to maintain fellowship with Christians beyond their particular communities, leaving churches isolated and fractured. Christians lost the ability to speak as Christians to the broader society, reducing the voice of the gospel to what happened within the walls of the church. And as Christians struggled just to survive, they lacked time and opportunity to reflect deeply on their faith and what it means leading to a theological superficiality that still plagues the church today. As one Slavic leader said, 1,200 years of Christian culture was largely lost in two generations. The reason I read that, the reason I said I know how evangelical Christians think, is that sometimes you detect a bit of glee in evangelical Christians about the coming persecution, right? They almost long for it. Because we say, well, persecution will come and it will purify the church. And that's what we need. The church needs to be purified. But when we think that way, we kind of let go of the blessing. We give up on making a difference for Jesus sake, right now in the culture in which we find ourselves, we let persecution that we think might come do for us what we will not do for ourselves. And that can be a sort of convenient attitude. It lets us off the hook. It lets us give up, especially when we think, well, I'm 53. Persecution's not going to come in my lifetime. But how wrong-headed Is that thinking? And are we willing to take that risk? To comfort ourselves that a potential persecution will strengthen the church? What if we end up on the other side of the historical persecution coin? Whack! What if persecution in this place results in a fading or complete elimination of the church? Though it will certainly continue in other places. Is this what we want? For our children? Our grandchildren? Our great-grandchildren that may be born in this place? Especially when we can do something about it. Please realize that the gospel can thrive. The gospel can thrive under the circumstances in which we now live. The freedoms we have. Why would we want to trade that? If every believer in Christ in America took, took their place in the gospel chain, if Christians in America were determined to, to pick up their cross and to follow hard after Jesus, then change can come to our church and to our country apart from persecution. I'm going to read from First Timothy chapter 2. Verses 1 through 4. Paul says, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. For kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of truth. Did you hear it? So we pray for those in authority over us that they would place their faith in Christ and come to know the truth. The truth will set them free. Then they will rule from a perspective of truth. And when they rule in that way, it leads to what? Peaceful, quiet lives for us, which Timothy says, which Paul says, is good and pleases the Lord. Why? Because when we have peaceful, quiet lives, we have the opportunity to spread the gospel, right? And so we pray for these because that's what God wants. He wants all kinds of people to be saved. So let's pray and then let's act so that the church progresses in this type of setting. And can we please not accept as a foregone conclusion that the church in America is doomed to weakness. Can we just pray and act so that the church becomes stronger? Can we please not just accept as a foregone conclusion that the American church is doomed to be consumeristic? Is the American church consumeristic? Yes, to a large extent it is now. But can we pray and can we act as a church? And say that we are not going to be self-centered, but that we are going to be Christ-centered and kingdom-centered. God considers it a great blessing to let us know that the church is going to go on and on and on and on. And guess what? He calls all of us here to be part of that longevity. That's his call to us. To use the blessings he has given us to be a family on mission together and to expand the kingdom right here right now, in this place. And to work with all the strength that God gives us to create a bold and a strong and a healthy church, determined not to go our own way until the Lord stops us through persecution, but rather to be a church that says, I love thy kingdom, Lord. To be a church that prays our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, what? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Thank you, Lord, that your kingdom goes on and on and on. Let me be part. Let us be part of that longevity. Let's pray together. Lord in heaven, we thank you again for your word. And we're mindful again, Lord, of your heart to bless your people. That's your heart, to bless us so that we thrive and flourish, so that we live well in the land where you place us. Not for our benefit, not for our prosperity, but for you, Lord, and for your glory and for the advance of your kingdom so that all kinds of people all over the world will come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. So Father, help us to hear your blessings on us this morning and help us to embrace them. Cause us to be people who love one another and depend on one another and who long to live in community with each other and to share all the good gifts that you have given to us so that together we become stronger in Christ. And from that strength, Lord, let us be a family on mission together so that the church in this place goes on and on and on and on. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.